Hey everybody, welcome to the STEM Sessions podcast, the UK STEM career podcast. I'm Dan Smith. I'm Rhoda Quist. I'm Alex Guvatos. I'm a software developer in the research and development department. And I work in build. So that takes care of making 3D assets, applying materials to them, and that then goes on to usually be destroyed later on. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm Lucy Wilkes. I'm a lead software developer for the FUR R&D team at DNIG. So um, could you both tell us a little bit about what DNIG do? DNIG is a visual effects company, and what that means is we get to work on movies like Marvel films like The Avengers and DC films like Wonder Woman. Uh, They've won multiple Academy Awards, for example, uh, for Blade Runner, Ex Machina, Interstellar. So special effects are things that we see in front of the camera, so things like real explosions that you might see in a film. DNEG does fake explosions, so it's all digital. That's that's a really interesting STEM role, and it's something very different to what we've had previously on the podcast. So in terms of what your role specifically is um, within that process, um, we'd love to learn a little bit more about that. Uh, so I work with the FUR team, um, and DNEG has its own in-house software for... Um, creating fur. So we make lots of furry creatures and also digital doubles of humans um, and we need to cover them in fur or we need to um, make hair for for um, human characters. Um, and a lot of the time we do replacement of real actors in shots that are too dangerous or even impossible sure. for real people to mm-hmm. do. Wow, so what what makes fur on a on a character look realistic then? A lot of the work we've been doing recently actually centres around how you make it move realistically. So we've done work to detect clumps in fur um, and then to make sure that they move in the right way. So the hairs that you would expect to move together, move together. And it adds a lot to making a realistic looking creature. Um, And also the way you render the hair to get um, a physically realistic reflection of light. A lot of work goes into that as well. I can imagine that that's come on quite a lot in the last 10-15 years just based on the movies that we see um, there's obviously a really really big jump now in terms of visual effects that from 15 years ago to now. Uh, yes I think we've got a lot better at making invisible doubles digitally. Um. <laughs> cool and what about yourself Alex what what part do you I remember you mentioning build? So I work for the build department um, it's quite a broad department we cover modeling surfacing and theoretically groom although a lot of it is um, part of what Lucy does so modeling means actually in 3D constructing things like virtual buildings sets vehicles um, as well as characters uh, usually digital doubles of real actors and then surfacing is taking those models and making sure they look correct in a phys- in a physically based way. So for clothes, we want to make sure that we have the correct colors and patterns. For skin, we want to make sure that the light goes into it and is reflected in the correct way. And applying those things and, and directing them in an artistic way is also part of that. There's a lot of thought that goes into everything you guys do. I can't even imagine 
the type of things that you have to think about. Light, reflecting and refracting. It sounds really cool, really, really cool. So um, what inspired you to become software developers? So growing up, even when I was in school, I was interested in uh, working in entertainment, whether that was video games, which I loved to play back then and I still enjoy very much, uh, or animation. I was watching a lot of Disney movies. Um, generally watching lots of movies. I used to go to the cinema a lot. So I wanted to be involved in that in some way. And at the same time, I was quite good at subjects like mathematics and physics. Um, and so one of my teachers said, oh, if you're interested in working in games, for example, you should probably study computer science. Uh, and so that's when I went uh to study informatics in Edinburgh University, quite focused in software engineering and artificial intelligence, which is also awesome, by the way. <laughs> but I still wanted to see if I can, if I can work for real in uh, games or visual effects or animation studio. And I was planning to do a, a master's actually at the time. Um, and on the last year of the bachelor's part of that program, I got an email from one of my lecturers who said, there's this great opportunity. Um, you get to study for a doctorate with Bournemouth and Bath universities, and it includes a placement for pretty much the entire duration, three or four years. And I thought that's an amazing opportunity, so I asked if I can stop the master's, make it a bachelor's instead, and went on to uh, to do a doctorate essentially in digital media. Okay, um, so tell us a bit about what your normal day-to-day -day role looks like. On a usual day, uh, as a software developer, people tend to think it's all about writing code. There's that, of course, but we need to make sure that the tools and the workflows we're developing are relevant. So quite a, bit, a big part of my day is talking with the artists who are the users of the software I write to make sure that what we make helps them, is user-friendly, hear about any problems they may have. And quite often for these blockbuster films, um, the problems that we're trying to solve haven't been solved before, at least not in that scale. So there's definitely a lot of conversations looking forward knowing what new films we may be working on and what kind of technology we'll need to deliver in order to, uh, to hit any, the requirements um, for that show. personality attributes or skills in particular you think are really, really important for um, a role as software developers? I think there's definitely some, some technical skills one needs to have, but uh, I suppose another misconception is that software is not a creative task and I would like to disagree with that. Maybe I'm biased, but I think when you're faced with a new problem and you need to find uh, or even if it's even if it's a problem that that's been already solved for for different requirements, you and you need to work with a new constraints, suddenly you need to find very creative solutions to that and I think that that's definitely an important personality trait to have. Just to backtrack a little bit, so you say there's some technical skills that are important. 
um, for any of our listeners who maybe are thinking about a career in software development, what technical skills are there? Is it a particular coding language or anything like that? So in R&D, we tend to use mostly C++, um, and there's also a bit of Python. Um, and our pipeline team, they use, I think, entirely Python. Um, so those tend to be the two big languages. Um, in what I do, there's also quite a lot of maths involved to um, work with points in 3D and that kind of thing. So I think several of my team have a background in maths or physics, um, whereas in other disciplines, there are more pure computer scientists. Yeah, on, on my team, we actually have a few people that used to be artists, but they still had the kind of thinking required. Um, so all they needed to do was learn the languages, really syntax to interface with the computer, um, and now they're working in R&D. So there's not just one way of going about it. Um, and I would argue that generally a lot of the artists at DNEG are essentially programmers without realizing it. They're doing things as part of their work that even though the even though they're not writing text, they're not writing code, they're still programming through some different interface uh, like node graphs or things like that. Do you think there are any technical skills you learn on the job? So even though I coded in Python before, uh, I think every day um, I learn new things, working with smart people. You can either learn new things about how you can approach a problem uh, in terms of how do you structure your solution, as well as more specific things about the language that you're using. So I definitely feel like I'm still learning, yeah. Um, so is there any advice you would give to your younger self, building on the knowledge you have now? What would you tell yourself a couple of years ago? I think I would be interested to know that um, careers in software development exist um, and that it is, as Alex mentioned, a very creative field to go into. I think it wasn't something that I ever thought of doing and I sort of fell into it by accident. Uh, but it actually, it is really interesting and really creative and I do enjoy it. Um, so if someone had suggested that to me as a career path when I was at school, I probably would have been quite interested. And also the idea that you can go into the visual effects industry with no artistic knowledge or expertise whatsoever, because I think that's also something I wasn't aware of. You can take a completely technical route and end up working on these amazing and beautiful looking films. See, I didn't know that. What is your favourite part of your job, if there is one? <laughs> it's not a trick mm. question. <laughs> my favourite part is working with my team to solve problems um, because we, as Alex mentioned, we're always facing new challenges. Um, as different shows come up, they all have slightly different requirements and problems to solve that actually no one's come up with a solution for ever before. Um, and when we're working together on something and all trying to solve the same problem, we tend to come up with something which is much better than any of us could have come up with on our own. Okay. I'd like to think as well, or you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but some of the problems that you come across that have never been you know, come across by people before, if you are able to you know, really solve them problems, then that obviously makes that really big sort of long-standing impact for future 
films. Yes, it's also very satisfying that our customers are in-house because I used to work for a software company and we never really saw the results of what we made. Uh, we never saw how people used it in practice apart from once a year at a trade show when they might come and do demos for us. So having the artists in the room next door and trying things, um, it's really amazing to see what they can do with the tools that we give them and also to get the fast feedback if something isn't working. Um, and to hear how we can make it better. So collaborating with the artist is also a big part of it. Yeah, I agree, yeah. And communication is important as well. So being able to go next door and say, hey, how did you find that? It's key as well. But also you mentioned teamwork as a soft skill is something that is really, really crucial and we try to emphasise because people, I think, underestimate how important working in a team is Um, because I think everyone has individual traits that comes together nicely in a team. So that's great you mentioned that. Thank you. So, next question. What is the biggest myth about your job or misconception that people have? I think it's probably one that you just touched on, um, that a developer sits on their own with headphones on and doesn't talk to anybody all day and they just write code. Uh, because in our jobs, it's very much not like that. You have to work with your team, you have to talk to the artists. As a lead, I also talk to stakeholders around the building, so heads of different departments, which might be Build, that Alex works for, or Creature, because we're um, work, most of our work is focused on building furry creatures um, and then there's also the rendering side of it so the furry creature has to go into a shot and that final shot has to be rendered to produce the pixels that go on the screen um, so there are a lot of people that we need to collaborate with and communicate with effectively and that's really I would say the, the biggest part of my job now. Alex I think you mentioned computer science at university um, what subjects did you take at school? So, I'm not sure about the school system here in the UK. I went to school in Luxembourg, the European school. And I had choices uh, between lots of maths or fewer hours of maths, physics, chemistry, biology, history, geography, art, lots and lots of choices. And it wasn't necessarily a track that would have just one or the other. Personally, I went for advanced maths and physics, uh, philosophy, which I enjoyed very much. And I think part of the thinking required for uh, a lot of what we do is based on the fundamentals of logic. Anyway, I also had biology, uh, history and geography. Um, at A-level, I did maths, physics, further maths and English literature. Um, I wanted to do French as well, but then I decided five A-levels would be too much. Um, so I was really torn. I wanted to study English, but I thought that maths and physics would give me more career options in the future. Uh, so I went for ma the maths and physics route, and I think it probably did give me more career options, and I'm glad I chose that in the end. So if you weren't um, software developers, do you have any idea what you'd want to do? I always wanted to write fiction um, and it's something that I have done on and off in my spare time but never actually finished a book yet so maybe one day I haven't thought about it too much I think we say software developer but the domain where you apply it can make a significant difference in in your day-to-day -day. so I think if I wasn't a software developer 
for visual effects uh, or any other sort of entertainment company like that, I would very much enjoy being a software developer or researcher for artificial intelligence. Um, if I were to not do software at all, I think I would go back to something more creative uh, and try to have uh, sort of... I, I would definitely want to have creative input into a game or a film or something like that. I'm not sure how I would do that. But. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow. I think that's a really nice message about being a software developer, though, that it is pretty transferable by sound of it, that you could do it in the entertainment in, um, industries or you could do it in something totally different. And, um, yeah, you'll still have you know some of the basic skills but be able to apply them in so many different ways. I think that's a really nice message. Yeah, I actually got into it through the medical industry. Um, having done some work experience at school in the field of medical physics, and I really enjoyed it, found it really interesting that you could apply physics in that way. Um, after university, I started a PhD in medical physics. Um, I didn't finish it, but I did discover that you could use computers to analyse images, and that was something that I found really interesting um, and when I decided to not to continue with my PhD, I found a job processing astronomical images. Um, so looking for satellites in a field of stars taken overnight. Um, unfortunately got made redundant from that, but I found a job afterwards in the VFX industry working for a company called The Foundry. Um, and I've stayed there for 14 years. Not at The Foundry, but in the industry. <laughs> so is there a project that you've worked on that's been particularly challenging and was there a really creative way that you've managed to solve it? In the R&D department, we have to, for the most part, deliver technology that is long-lasting. So rather than technology that will be used or software that will be used for one scene or just for one movie, which may be a thing, but we try to deliver... Um, technology that can be used for multiple movies and, if possible, for multiple years. So the latest and greatest challenge that I've faced is the new surfacing pipeline for the company. So the idea behind it was, given the size of the company and the amount of movies that we work on, wouldn't be great if we could have a library of materials like different kinds of metal, gold, brass, copper, uh, car paints, plastics, things like that, expose them through a nice, uh, almost shopping basket interface to the artists so they can drag those materials onto their 3D models, buildings, cars, and so on. And instead of having a gray 3D model, you can, out of modeling, get what is essentially a 360 rotation, a turntable is what we call it, that can then be shown to clients and they can approve it or make some comments and then we can start iterating from a better point of view, paint on the canvas, as we say. That's really interesting and I'm sure that's a really big undertaking, but you're going to be able to see a really big impact from that in terms of the things that are produced um, by DNEG in terms of, yeah, you'll be able to do that really quickly and I'm sure that's really beneficial for artists as well. Yeah. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> Has there ever been a time where you've needed a plan B? 
I suppose when I decided that um, I didn't want to finish my PhD, um, I had to come up with something else. So I initially started it because I wasn't really clear what I wanted to do and it sounded interesting, but it became clear to me that you need a bit more motivation to keep going and studying hard for three years when your friends are getting jobs and buying houses and cars and so on. Um, so after I decided to stop initially I thought I want a job where I don't have to think very much maybe I'll just go and work in a supermarket or something for a bit and just not have to study not have to learn um, but then I found this imaging job in the ast astronomy field that sounded really interesting um, so it wasn't exactly a plan but I fell into it by accident and it turned out to be really interesting and I'm actually glad I didn't finish my PhD or I wouldn't be here where I, where I am today. From my side, I don't know if I would say I was planning all this as I was going, um, but I suppose when I was studying informatics, for example, as I said, I was in initially enrolled for a master's degree. When I got this other opportunity, I had to weigh those two uh, paths of my life, decided to go for the doctorate. Um, while I was doing that, I knew that worst case scenario, I still know what I know. Uh, I could work as a software developer, even if I don't manage to get into a visual effects company. And even after I finished my doctorate, I was quite tired uh, from that final stretch. Um, you have to write about what you did, turns out. <laughs> and uh, that is quite psychologically draining, or at least it was for me, because you feel like you're going to be evaluated as a person, and that's not the case. It's the work you did that's being evaluated. And so at that point, I was thinking, do I want to, after I was finished, do I want to work for a tech company, like a software company in in some other field, or do I want to continue and still pursue that, that dream of working in, in entertainment? And I think I was just reading the news, and I was reading some news about some artificial intelligence breakthrough, and I thought, that's really cool. And then I was reading the news about some visual effects behind a big film, and I thought, that is extremely cool. <laughs> um, <laughs> And that's what I'm going to do. And I thought because of how transferable software engineering is, even if that doesn't go as well, or if, if it's not what I hope it would be, I can always then go and pursue that other option of work for a tech company. I think both your career journeys are really inspiring, both very different, but both still amazing. Um, I think it's really crucial that we highlight that to our teachers and other STEM ambassadors that there's no set plan in going into a certain role. Yeah, that's amazing. I have another question. So when you were pursuing your doctorate, did you ever think you'll ever be overqualified? Did you ever go in there thinking, ooh, jobs could turn me down because I'm overqualified? I hear that quite a lot from people that pursue PhDs or are thinking of pursuing PhDs. That's something that's at the back of their mind. When I applied for my doctorate, I needed to get some references. I had done an internship before, so I asked for a reference from my boss during that time. And 
Of course, he was very happy to give me the reference, but he did tell me, are you sure about that? It sounds like you're going into a niche and then you might be overqualified. From my experience, maybe it's true for other people, from my experience, that is not true. Worst case scenario, I've picked up some skills that are not relevant for everyone, but it doesn't mean I can't still have other skills. So um, what volunteering have you done in, um, in STEM outreach? So I'm relatively new to STEM outreach. Um, I think I started get, to get involved about six months ago now. Um, the first official activity that I did was a talk at um, a grammar school in Gravesend a month or two ago. Um, and that was about what it was actually aimed at showing the students there what other careers they could get into from studying maths um, because a lot of them assume that they're then just going to go into finance in the city and they don't necessarily realize that other options exist so I went in to talk to them about my role as a software developer in VFX and what that actually means in practice. Um, I've also done a podcast as part of Access VFX which is aimed at getting um, more visibility on VFX careers and especially among communities that aren't particularly well represented at the moment. Uh, they also have an e-mentorship program that I'm involved in as well. So in the past I've given some talks to schools, um, different ages, and I thought I tried to be the person that maybe I wished I had when I was in school. Um, I'm not sure if I succeeded, but I mean it in terms of educating the children about the career opportunities out there, but also the teachers, as you said, so that if a kid at some point says, I really like films, I would like to work in that, but also I really enjoy solving math problems, the teacher could then step in and say, well, have you considered this? Maybe it's not the right thing, but... When I was in school, I didn't even know that there is so much technical work and so much math-based work going on behind the scenes to make the, the films that we watch. So for me, as a female software developer in the VFX industry, I spend a lot of time as the only woman in the team or the only woman in the room. And... I also didn't really see very many examples of, of women doing software development when I was at school. So something that's really important to me is to try to be visible to young women and, and girls who are trying deciding what they want to do for their careers. Um, and so it's particularly important for me that they can see a woman having those roles, leading a team, doing software development, working in the VFX industry. Yes, it's something that I wasn't really exposed to. It's great you shared that. We're always passionate about breaking down myths in regards to certain jobs, etc., especially for females, because um, we know a lot of the time females outperform males at GCC or A-level sometimes, but they don't necessarily go into those roles post-16. Um, and this can be attributed to numerous amount of things. It could be confidence. It could be not necessarily having the right influences to actually guide them into their career journey. So it's amazing that you are in such a position and that you do go out and support young people to get a better understanding of um, the different roles available to them. That's amazing. Thanks for that, Lucy. So what makes a digital character look really realistic? Now, as we've mentioned at the start, um, there's been a really big sort of, you know, really big leaps in 
um, your industry in terms of how um, digital characters now look. But what what would you say is the main reason for that? What are the things that now look make it look so much more realistic? There's a there's a huge number of things that go into making up a digital character. So from my perspective, I think. Um, to talk about hair and fur specifically, the amount of detail that we can get these days is, is, is much, much higher than it used to be. Um, so, for example, when we make a digital double of an actor, we model everything down to the tiny vellus hairs on their skin. And it you can't see them on the screen, but it all adds to the overall realism because without those hairs, when you light the skin you don't get the same properties of the light reflecting and refracting back. So it just gives you that realistic, human-like skin appearance that you couldn't get any other way. And I think it's probably the same for other disciplines as well. There's a huge amount of effort and a huge amount of attention to detail that goes into every single element now of a character. To add to that, in terms of the character's uh, body, we are able to actually scan. We have the technology to scan and create 3D reproductions of a person, and that includes a lot of detail about all sort of shapes on their, you know, the shape of their skin and so on. Uh, on top of that, then, there's artists who are really good at sculpting, who go in and add additional detail as they would sculpting a statue. And then on top of that, you have the details Lucy mentioned for the hair, rendering of the skin, and so on. And then that's already hopefully at a pretty good level, but we need to make sure that it also fits the environment it's in. Because quite often, I don't know if you've seen any of those uh, sloppy sort of Photoshop jobs where you just take something from one image, paste it into another image. They're both photographs, so theoretically they're realistic looking, but because the pasted one looks out of place, there's no shadows, for example, it's not fully embedded in the environment, that can immediately break uh, the effect of realism. Yes, and once the model looks realistic, in a rest pose there's a lot of work that goes into making it move in a believable way and the artists that we work with they have an extraordinarily detailed understanding of anatomy they know how all the muscles and bones fit together they know which what's connected to what and how things can move and then they create rigs for characters to emulate those muscles and connections and make sure that the character is moving in a physically believable way and that's without even adding clothes, <laughs> which have to move in a believable and physically accurate way. <laughs> and then hair on top. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of attention to detail in your role, I can tell. And precision, it's really, really important for such, for such roles. Yes, I, it's something I didn't realise until I moved to Deneg in the last year or so, um, at how much background the artists have to understand in order to make something that looks believable and as sort of uneducated observers looking at it we don't know that 
the muscles connect in that way. But if the artist hadn't set it up correctly, we would spot immediately that something was wrong because we're very good at detecting anything that doesn't look realistic. It's amazing. It's amazing, amazing how your expertise all come together to make something function in such an efficient way. It's crazy. Okay, so Lucy, you mentioned that you work in a male-dominated team. How do you thrive in such an environment? I think it's taken me a long time to learn how to actually thrive rather than just surviving day to day. And um, one of the things over the last few years that I've really appreciated is getting the chance to work with more women, not necessarily in my team, but in other teams around the the company and the industry. Um, I'm actually part of Animated Women UK, who organise female only events to connect women and to help them to network and build connections. Um, and so I, I now have a network of very supportive women who face the same kind of issues where they're the only female in a meeting, um, the only female in their team, that kind of thing. And I found that really helpful. Um, when I was just starting out in the industry, I think a big thing for me was there were no female role models that I could look up to. So there was no females leading development teams um, and there still aren't as many as I would like there to be but there are a few of us around and I think the important thing for me is that we find each other and we um, support each other and we talk about the issues that we're facing and what we can do to um, make it better and also educate the men around us. <laughs> So Alex is actually part of our diversity group at DNEG. Uh, we have a working group aimed at uh, increasing inclusion and diversity um, in the company. Uh, part of that is getting more involved in the STEM ambassador programme. Amazing you're involved in the diversity and inclusion team at DNEG. That's always really important. But also the STEM ambassador programme, you're shining light to all your colleagues. And I think the work that you do at DNEG is amazing it goes above my head a lot of it um but it's great to have you on board as stem ambassadors and we definitely know young people and teachers would benefit from hearing about the range of things you do in your role and your career journey so thank you so much thank you thank you